Hi, I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and this is Not Just the Tudors. Let me start by reading to you one of the most mysterious and beautiful poems to come out of Henry VIII's court. They flee from me, that sometime did me seek, with naked foot, stalking in my chamber. I have seen them gentle, tame, and meek, that now are wild, and do not remember that sometime they put themselves in danger to take bread at my hand, and now they range busily seeking with a continual change. Thank be fortune it hath been otherwise twenty times better, but once in special, in thin array, after a pleasant guise, when her loose gown from her shoulders did fall, and she me caught in her arms, long and small, therewithal sweetly did me kiss, and softly said, Dear heart, how like you this? It was no dream. I lay broad waking, but all is turned through my gentleness into a strange fashion of forsaking, and I have leave to go of her goodness, and she also to use newfangledness. But since that I so kindly am served, I would fain know what she hath deserved. What appears to be, and indeed is, a reflection on a moment of intimacy, also carries echoes of the court of Henry VIII. Especially here we have the question of what is served and what is deserved. It was written by an accomplished poet and linguist, one who has been described as one of the morning stars of the Renaissance in England, a man who introduced into English the Petrarchan sonnet, the epigram, the Horatian verse epistle, and difficult Italian verse forms from Dante and Petrarch like the Terza Rima, in which rhymes interweave between groups of three lines or tercets, ABA, BCB, CDC, and so on. But he was also an ambassador, a diplomat, and a spy in service to Henry VIII. His name was Sir Thomas Wyatt linked to Anne Boleyn, and escaping from both the Inquisition and from the justice of Henry VIII's court, after having been thrown into the tower on two occasions, Sir Thomas Wyatt's life is as mysterious as his poem, He Flees From Us. To talk about this bright star, I am joined by another Dr. Susan Brigden is a supernumerary fellow at Lincoln College, Oxford, and a fellow of the British Academy, as well as a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. The first woman fellow appointed at Lincoln College, she is a luminary. Her vast output of historical work includes the books London and the Reformation, New World's Lost Worlds, The Rule of the Tudors, 1485 to 1603, and her magnificent Thomas Wyatt, The Heart's Forest, which in 2012 won the UK's most prestigious history prize, the Wolfson. And it is no exaggeration to say that she has been one of the greatest influences on both the life of my mind and my heart.
We are sitting just outside Oxford, where some 20 years ago, we first sat and discussed Wyatt. So it is a great honour to me that you have come here to talk about him. And then, of course, we were discussing my undergraduate essays, and now we are discussing your book. So from the ridiculous to the sublime. But we are going to be talking about perhaps the most brilliant man at Henry VIII's court, Sir Thomas Wyatt. Why does he matter so much? In one way, he mightn't be so different from lots of other Tudor courtiers, but he was the most brilliant, and they knew that he was the most brilliant, and at his death, they celebrated him. The Earl of Surrey wrote a great epitaph for him, and other people wrote a great chorus of mourning songs. That Not until the death of Sir Philip Sidney, another Kentish courtier, did that happen again. So what was special about him? There are things about him that we can hardly tell because we haven't met him, and much of this is secret. But we do know a great deal about him. He was painted by Holbein. He's a poet. His religious example is known, oddly, because for most of his life he didn't seem religious at all. He's a diplomat, but a climacteric of diplomatic practice. He's a poet. He brings the sonnet. He brings the epigram. He brings Italian poets into English. He's remarkable. He's a friend of Cromwell. He's a friend of leading courtiers. He's sometime favourite of the king. And he lives a life on the edge. And I suppose what for me is most remarkable is the example of a life lived in danger what you do, how you live, when you're faced with such compromise, when everything is likely to be contaminated, the hopes you had of yourself and that others had of you. A curious thing is that no accepted canon of his poems exists. Yes. Why is this and how were his verses circulated? There is no canon and there are heroic editions of him and the editors disagree his poems weren't published in his lifetime for interesting reasons. And the first thing of his that's published is his paraphrase of the Psalms in Edward VI's reign. His poems were meant to be secret. They're meant to be sung in a sort of self-defining courtly company of friends. And so they exist in manuscript. And the ones that come closest to him are those that are in his own poetry manuscript, the Edgerton manuscript. And he writes his own name in the margin. He's his own editor. And sometimes we can see him composing in that book in his own hand, crossing something out, carrying a word and then putting something different in a few lines later. It's very exciting to see it. And then another manuscript is one that's kept by a collection of friends and lovers at that court, the Devonshire Manuscript. And another one that's kept by another set of friends, which was associated with Henry Howard, the Earl of Surrey. But I don't think he could imagine a treasury of verse. And some of these poems are likely to endanger them as well, so they couldn't circulate beyond the likely company. And one of the things I particularly remember, actually, from our early discussions about Wyatt, but of course is throughout your book, is this sense that with Wyatt, all is not as it seems. No. There's been such a tendency to press his poetry into being autobiographical and confessional, and yet he always remains elusive and ambiguous. 
he sometimes says that he wants to make things plain, make plain thy heart that it be not knotted. But he doesn't let you in. Even his portrait, you see him with a sideways glance. I mean, of his own nature, perhaps, he's secretive. But I think Brian Cummings said of him wonderfully that he wants to keep secrets without telling lies. And that's a very hard thing. This is a world in which Wyatt says himself that with a syllable changed, maketh a great difference. And in the end, at a great extremity in the tower when he's being examined and his friends are being examined, the law of words, the treason act, is going to punish him for the difference between saying that the king had been left out of a cart's ass or cast out of a cart's ass. And so it's not even a whole syllable, it's a few letters. And this is because words have become treason. There's a new danger in Henry VIII's court, and they're aware of it. And there is the danger of becoming a heretic too, which has terrible penalties as well. So if words are dangerous, it's a very dangerous time to be a poet and indeed a diplomat. And I suppose let's perhaps start with his poetry and then we can talk more about his diplomacy and indeed what got him into the tower twice. You've mentioned that he introduces forms to English and I suppose it might be helpful to talk about the sort of introduction of those forms and Wyatt as a humanist scholar. Wyatt is learned. He's read in Roman moralists in Seneca. He's been taught Stoic philosophy. He translates Plutarch. He's a very good Latinist, which is the language of diplomacy. He probably wrote Latin poetry, but we don't know what it is, if it survives. But he's also a brilliant linguist. He knows French, and his first diplomatic posting is to France. But he knows Italian, I think, from a young age. My suspicion is that he knows it from being friends with the brilliant Italian merchants in London. So he's an early adept of Petrarch, but also of modern Italian poets, Alamanni, Aretino, Ariosto. And Puttenham says later that he and the Earl of Surrey are leaders of a new company of courtly makers. So they're determined to do something different. And the sonnet provides a particular opportunity for Wyatt and for Surrey and for all poets after them because it's poetry in press. It follows a form and that form brings a kind of compression. So he's a consummate experimenter, really. You don't find much smoothness in Wyatt's poetry because he doesn't intend it. He wants to unsettle you, I think. One of the places where he experiments with a difficult rhyming sequence and also contemplates the great humorous question of whether you are involved in the active or the contemplative life is this wonderful satire, Mine Own John Points. Can you tell me what you make of that? The point about epistolary satires is that they're directed to a particular person. And John Points is a remarkable figure. There's a wonderful portrait of him by Holbein where he's looking upwards like the donor in a religious painting. And John Points is someone who, unlike Wyatt, has made the great refusal. He doesn't stay at court. So for Points, Wyatt writes two verse epistles to him based on Alemanni, but Alemanni following Horace, the Roman poet. And the question is, do you stay at court? 
And if you're at court, how do you behave? Do you compromise yourself? And sometimes in that poem, Wyatt's saying, I cannot do this. I cannot feign. As if the I in the poet is Wyatt himself. We guess that. And very often we can't assume that the I in Wyatt's poems is Wyatt himself. But in these verse epistles to John Points and to Francis Bryan, he comes very close to these friends. And Points is, I think, one of the friends and mentors of Wyatt's youth, probably with his brother Francis Points. There's a sense of a continuing conversation and carried on now in distance. Uh, when Wyatt is addressing perhaps Points' disappointment in him, you can be judged Points how I dispend my time, how I do spend my time. And in this, he's doing something remarkable because he's writing in terza rima and attempting that chain of rhyme in English, which is really difficult. But this is one of the poems that's copied in more manuscripts than any other of his poems. One of the things that comes out of a poem like that and quite a lot of Wyatt's other poems is a criticism of the court. And given that words become dangerous in this period, those criticisms often seem to come very close to almost naming Henry VIII and his court, don't they? Yes, they do. And when he borrows from Aretino, when he paraphrases the penitential psalms, the figure of David the tyrant, David the adulterer, David the sinner, David in his court before we reach him in his cave. And this is to take you quite close to Henry VIII, who himself presents himself as King David, a little David against Goliath, in his own prayer book. Of course, with Wyatt, there's nothing so simple as to associate King David and King Henry. And in those psalm paraphrases, he talks only of the tyranny of sin. But he talks about David's particular sins, you know, his lust after Bathsheba, his send his tyranny of sending her husband into the front line to certain death and to cover his sin. And when Surrey writes in praise of Wyatt's psalms, he talks of where rulers may see in a mirror clear the bitter fruit of false concupiscence how jury bought Uriah's death full dear. So he's making an association, and maybe other people did too. But we can't on the evidence of the poetry alone, because why would Wyatt let us? It's too dangerous. I want to ask you, is it not obvious when he says something like, I cannot crouch nor kneel nor do such wrong to worship them like God on earth alone? that are like wolves, these silly lambs among. Yes. Is that not too close to the bone? Like God on earth alone, of course, must be Henry. There's, Maybe. There's, there's, there's <laughs> in Wyatt, this immense power of implication mm. and for us, an easy inference. But whether he says it, he doesn't know just Henry VIII's court, of course. He yes. knows Francis I's court, and he knows Alfonso d'Este's court at Ferrara, and he knows the court of Rome because he's been there in his youth, and he knows Charles V's court. He sees the corruptions of court and the prevailing courtly sin of flattery and its dangers and the difficulty of telling truth. There's no doubt about that. And he talks about court as a gilded cage and fettered with chains of gold. 
the figure of Henry looms over his poetry and references to Caesar might take us to Henry, but he won't allow us to get there. He's much too clever for that. Mm. So you alluded there to his role as an ambassador, as a diplomat, whose job it is to speak in words of flattery and persuasion. And yet in mine own John points, he says he cannot frame his tongue to feign. And so there's this inconsistency in that he is required to lie for his job and yet denies, lies about lying perhaps. Yes. So Wyatt is, I think at the age of what, 23, he's first sent to France to be a messenger and a servant to the English ambassador at a tricky time. And he sees then the falsity of princes' promises to each other. And then when he's 20, he goes to the court of Rome, which is, of course, the greatest court in the world, where he says he cannot be in for money, poison and treason in Rome. But he's trained, brought up, he's educated somewhere to be a brilliant linguist and to speak the Aureate diction that ambassadors speak. And he says to Charles V at some point, I am no jurist. And the emperor laughs because Wyatt is absolutely adept at all this. But in his poetry and in his own private language, he eschews romance languages and chooses to speak in his own Anglo-Saxon or Middle English. He uses very often steadfast or happen unhap or one up, all words that are deliberately a world away from the language of courts and lying and creeping. So we want to talk a bit about White's career at the English court. And many people might know the association between Wyatt and Anne Boleyn, but he was actually Catherine of Aragon's man, yes. wasn't he? Yes. And he turns from her. Shall we talk about that allegiance to Catherine, in fact, demonstrated to Catherine at a crucial time and his subsequent turning? Yes. We don't know exactly how Wyatt was educated or where he was brought up. But it's clear that his association with the Points brothers and the Pointses were absolutely Queen Catherine's men. Absolutely, their allegiance to her never faltered. They come very close to her in all sorts of ways. And when at a moment of greatest danger for Catherine in 1526 and at the new year of 1526 into 1527... This is at a terrible moment as the king is about to abandon her as the divorce proceedings will begin or the investigations. And at that point, Wyatt does something really remarkable, which is to address his translation of The Quiet of Mind, Plutarch's Greek, then was turned into Latin and then Wyatt translated it. And this is about how you attain quiet of mind and follow truth in all the difficulties that the world brings. And he does something remarkable, which is to dedicate it to Catherine at this particular moment. So he's nailed his colours to the mast. But very soon thereafter, you begin to see his movement. This is at the moment when Henry has determined to have Anne Boleyn in whatever way he can. And of course, Wyatt probably knew Anne Boleyn from way back at the court. We can't really imagine them romping together in the Kentish countryside because Anne was a grand court lady brought up in France. She's away. But when she comes home, she rocks the court. And it's a sort of assumption 
that's almost contemporary one that the most brilliant man at court and the most brilliant woman at court will know each other, may fall for each other or whatever. And if you're seeking Anne in his poetry, then there are these hints of Anne in several poems and probably more poems than critics have found already, I think. But for him to become Anne's man after being Catherine's is the greatest traduction, the greatest disloyalty that he has to live with. How would you follow the Queen's favourite if she's the great star to whom you have to align yourself? It's interesting to consider what impact that might have had on him because so much of his work is thinking on this theme of betrayal and of friendship. And here he has betrayed a friend, the Queen. Yes, and her whole party, of course, the pointses and the people that with whom he once jousted have made different choices from him. Sebastian Nudicate, whom he jousted with at the great festival of the Castle of Loyalty, actually becomes a monk at the Charterhouse and then dies for treason. So that's the most extreme example. But the pointses are the Queen's men still. Yes, so he has not only chosen to follow Anne as opposed to Catherine, he's also chosen to be in service at Negotium, that Otium choice that he's made not to be a monk. He he is going to be in the service of this tyrant. Exactly. And all those things that he says in the verse satire, the, the verse epistle to John points that his eye cannot do, then why it does in abundance. He's the king's ambassador as this king breaks with Rome, tears down the shrine to St Thomas of Becket, who seizes the wealth of the monasteries, who executes Moore and Fisher and the monks of the Charter House. So the ambassador has to not only represent the king, but also play the king in some way and act as the king at the foreign court's friend almost, because to be an ambassador is to forward the fictive friendship. All this politics is personal. It's not the relationship between states, but it's the relationship between monarchs who have realms and subjects. It's no wonder that he translates the penitential psalms, really, is it? Like St Paul, he does that thing that he doesn't want to do. (laughs) His life is completely full of complexity and contradiction. Yes. And to paraphrase the Psalms, it's a remarkable feat of poetry, but it's also the point that we see Wyatt as a religious pilgrim, really. And this is the Wyatt who, as the servant of his king, the ambassador to Charles V, has been the subject of the interest of the Spanish Inquisition. In fact, the Pope has told the papal nuncio that the Inquisition must pursue this English ambassador. So the instructions have come from the highest place possible. And in these circumstances, Wyatt turns to that place where sinning Christians or Christians in great travail have turned always, which is to the penitential psalms. And he does something very remarkable. He does something remarkable poetically because he introduces them as Aretino had done by setting them in the real life of King David and the world of sin. And those parts he turns into Ottava Rima, which is the great heroic verse of the Italian Renaissance. And then in the Psalms themselves, he writes in Terza Rima, the tercets, the chains of rhyme. But 
this Wyatt investigating David's return to grace, and you see these are the most heartfelt and agonised accounts of faith in the Old Testament, certainly. And at this point, lots and lots of people are paraphrasing them, but they're all priests and clerics. They're not laymen, not yet. Others will follow Wyatt, but Milton, Sidney, but not yet. There is something more to think about with his faith, but I suppose that even thinking about Wyatt's faith means that we need to think about his relationship with Anne Boleyn and her party. And there's a story from several sources, although none of them particularly good, of an early love affair between Wyatt and Anne in some point in the 1520s that Wyatt is said to have disclosed to Henry. What do you make of it? These stories come from later witnesses from Catholic writers in the later 16th century, but they're ones who knew the people close to Moore and to Wyatt himself, people in the city of London. And the story goes, and it's a remarkable story, that Wyatt, trying to dissuade Henry from marrying Anne Boleyn, he alleges the story of his own affair with her in order that she be compromised and tainted in order that the king could not marry her. If he did, this would be the greatest friendship to Catherine of Aragon that could be. It would be the greatest truth-telling to a king that could be. It is possible. And at some point around this time, Wyatt goes away first. He volunteers himself to go with Sir John Russell on an embassy to Rome. And then he goes off to Calais, which is out of darkness for the Tudor courtier, although quite a lot of them find themselves there at some point. But Calais, which is the last bulwark of English authority on the continent, I think we're left to guess whether things are possible or not possible, whether he could have done it or not done it. And I suppose even if we were to conclude that he had told Henry of this, that doesn't mean that it had happened. (laughs) There's another layer of possibility there. And to say that it had happened is to put himself in danger. And in fact, you know, obviously Henry doesn't take any notice of him, even if he believes him. There's this danger of telling truth to power. But proof of Wyatt's love for Anne has often been sought in his poetry, and most famously with Whoso List to Hunt. Let's talk about that. So here Wyatt writes a sonnet in imitation of Petrarch's Una candida cerva sopra l'erba. Petrarch tells of a verdant spring with a white hind in green grass, and the reference is to Laura, his great love in life and in death. And here she is in death, and she's been taken from him and made free by God. In Wyatt, this is the most savage transmutation of a Petrarch sonnet, because what we have is a hind, a deer, who's being chased. And Wyatt is one of those chasing her, but he says, Whoso lists to hunt, I know where is an hind. But as for me, alas, I may no more. The vain travail hath wearied me so sore. I am of them that farthest cometh behind. Yet may I by no means my wearied mind draw from the deer, but as she fleeth afore, fainting I follow. I leave off, therefore, Sithen's inner net, 
I seek to hold the wind. Who list her hunt, I put him out of doubt, as well as I may spend his time in vain. And graven with diamonds in letters plain, there is written her fair neck round about, Noli me tangere, for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. Wow. So here we have a real chase and no happy outcome. What happens to the deer in the chase? She's being chased into a net, which is what happens in real Tudor hunting, very ungame, you might think. But this deer, he says, more or less, be my guest if you want to hunt her, as well as I may spend his time in vain. But she has already been seized because written around her neck is this necklace which says, Noli me tangere, for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. And of course, wildness and tameness recur in Wyatt's poetry and flight and fainting and the hopeless chase. But Noli me tangere, for Caesar's I am, takes you to two of the most numinous texts in the New Testament. Noli me tangere is the moment where Mary Maudlin in the garden sees the risen Christ and she's the first person to see him after the crucifixion. It's an extraordinary moment and she doesn't at first recognise him. And he says, touch me not for I'm not yet ascended to the Father. And Caesar's I am takes you to that moment where Christ says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Well, render unto Caesar things that are corruptible and corrupting. This is money, the coin. And to God is your heart, your soul, your mind, your truth. So if this is about Anne Boleyn, who is herself evangelical and steeped in the New Testament, then it's an extraordinary thing to say about her. And to say of her, Caesar's I am. There are other references echoing back and back through this Salinas and the white deer that the Caesars had. I don't know what to make of this poem, but it's a brutal transmutation of Petrarch, that's for sure. And Wyatt knew what he was doing after all. Did Edison really take credit for things he didn't invent? Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? And would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from History Hit, patented History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies... From stitching the Star-Spangled Banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, much of his poetry is part of this courtly love sort of paradigm of poetry, the sort of the suffering lover and the dismissive beloved. And I remember C.S. Lewis saying about Wyatt that if you like your poetry, lean, sinew in a little bit sad, (laughs) which he says, I confess I do, then you like Wyatt. And you mentioned earlier the Devonshire manuscript, which is perhaps a way that we see this idea of the ambiguity of courtly love manifest on the page. A lot of Wyatt's poems conform to this sense of being wearied and chasing after and people fleeing from him, don't they? Some of the poems you wouldn't necessarily give room to particularly. They're conventional, they're what was expected, they're about plaining and sorrow and the heart's unrest and I can hardly remember any to recite here and some of them are meant to be sung probably our Robin jolly Robin tell me how that lemon your sweetheart doth and I will tell of mine which is a bit ungracious anyway but quone down was I in my lady's grace quone down was I once but they're anodyne and they're about serving and deserving and They're playing on the old courtly love tropes. And these are the ones probably that Wyatt went, me list no more to sing of love or no such thing. But the poems, his heart, I think, are the sonnets and the epigrams mainly. But there are love poems there. But the most beautiful love poem is one that's written in very derided Poulter's measure. And it's called So Feeble is the Thread. It's headed in the Edgerton Manuscript in Spain, and it refers to the separation of the lover from his beloved, and it really is heartfelt. He's longing to wing his way back to her, and if he doesn't come home, which after all is a possibility in Wyatt does die riding home, if he doesn't come home, then he hopes that this poem will come to her. And I find it very affecting, but that's not a a court poem. Yes, and of course, one of the stories of Wyatt's life is that he is very unhappily married and then indeed separated. And then there is a love affair. Not This isn't Anne Boleyn (laughs) this time, but there is a, a love affair. And so he is indeed separated from someone he loves and separated from someone he doesn't love until Henry VIII does something about that. Yes, and I forgot to say that the woman that he does love, Elizabeth Darrell, Bess Darrell, 
is absolutely the loyalist of Queen Catherine's maidens, the most cherished, left large amounts of money in Catherine's will for a marriage that happens much, much later. Someone who's brought up to a grand marriage to some great figure and falls in love with Wyatt and therefore contaminates herself because Wyatt is already married to a woman that not only does he not love her, but he blames her. He hates her, I think. He won't support her. When Wyatt writes to his son, he talks about the faults in marriage which lie in him. He says most chiefly in her. He marries grandly the daughter of Lord Cobham, Brooke, and the marriage goes disastrously wrong for whatever reason. The fault is chiefly in her, he says. But this is the world of Kent, of the Berlins and the Brooks and the Harpers, who is another candidate for Wyatt's lady. But all the while that Wyatt is in Spain, Bestarrel is in the household of Gertrude, the Marchioness of Exeter, who's again one of Catherine of Aragon's closest supporters. So here we are in the late 1530s, but I want to pick up on a couple of things before that. One is that in 1534, Wyatt may have committed a murder. Yes. This is extraordinary, and it's one of these other great mysteries. The story is that Wyatt murders a sergeant-at-arms. He's in the city, and he murders this city official. And he goes to the fleet prison and is very soon let out, probably, I would imagine, at the behest of Thomas Cromwell. Don't know. But why that murder takes place is one of the great mysteries. Maybe it's just that Wyatt trained to arms, a gallant, extreme, not guarded, is walking through the city with his sword by his side. Certainly another of his own servants is in trouble for the same reason, John Mantle. So maybe it's just him in his pride and arrogance and lack of control that does it. But this is also a tremendously tense time as the Reformation proceeds. It's a time of when people are meant to keep silent. And Wyatt, just a day before, has been at dinner with an evangelical bishop, one of Anne's bishops. So it's a mystery. What can we make of his faith before we take him to the Tower? And how that, I suppose, affects his shift from being the Queen's man to becoming, well, the new Queen's man. We could build castles in the air about Wyatt's faith. The first real sense we have of it is in his letter to his son. This is about truth and honesty and how you live. It's a remarkable account. What he tells his son is that he must remember that he's always in God's and the worm of conscience never dies, that he must live as though his guardian angels are looking over him. It doesn't say anything about the church. It doesn't say anything about an evangelical faith. And in fact, it says that Wyatt's own father, Sir Henry Wyatt, has purchased his grace for Wyatt, which is a very unevangelical thing to say. So when Wyatt is writing letters, he's writing fairly conventional letters, ending them saying, may God keep you and your bond beads man. And these are conventional and heading them Corpus Christi Day or whatever. So there's nothing we can really tell about Wyatt's faith, except that we find him swearing by God's blood, which is not the sort of thing that a very religious person would do. It's a travesty. 
But then we have this remarkable testimony of his psalm paraphrase, which the Earl of Surrey says is witness of faith that never shall be dead, sent for our health but not received. And he writes about Wyatt as though he were a prophet and Vartes, an extraordinary figure. So Wyatt, at some point unknown, begins to paraphrase the seven penitential psalms. And we see him composing them. And we could imagine him with his sources laid in front of him, one of which may have been Luther. Others of them are Campensis, but Fisher to the Catholic martyr and whatever biblical translations he's got. He comes very close to expressing an evangelical faith, but doesn't quite, or perhaps he does. It's here above all that he's talking about the heart's Jerusalem, inward Zion. He talks about the heart contrite, David's return to grace. But the great doctrine of the early Reformation is, of course, justification by faith alone. And if we want to find him saying it, we don't quite. It's not a doctrine expressly forbidden, but it's a doctrine that comes close to dangerous when the English prescriptions of faith are being written and rewritten. He says something like, just am I judged by justice of thy grace, and then I misquote it, but you've got him dancing around these various versions of just and justifying and justice and judging. But the whole question for David and for all sinners, but for Luther above all, is the relationship between God's mercy and his justice, because in God's justice we should all be condemned, but in his mercy he saves some. And the question here, we don't have in the Psalms the sudden imputation of Lutheran righteousness where someone is made right in God's sight, but we have a sort of process which is a reciprocity between David's true penitence and the signs of God's forgiveness. So we find David surprised by joy and the light piercing the darkness of David's cave and playing on the gold of David's lute, these extraordinary moments. And then David is seeming to be absolutely cast down, truly penitent, and the possibility of salvation for him. But then in the last psalm, we turn to find David again thinking about, not about his soul or about the afterlife or Christ's coming, but about whether his kingdom will be saved for his son. It's a very strange transition. But there are great questions about when Wyatt wrote this. Was it when he's just released from the tower for the first time in 1536? But I think some of the beauty of the verse suggests that it's late in his life and because of the agonies of David. Let's talk about that traumatic moment of his life when Anne and a number of men are accused of adultery and Anne is obviously accused also of incest and conspiring the king's death and in the end five men die with her including her brother and Wyatt is one of those who is imprisoned and sees Anne going to her death but himself does not die and 
we have poetry where he's reflecting on this. You suggest that maybe it's his friendship with Cromwell that is crucial to his escape. But maybe we should think about how he thinks on this, at least as far as the poetry can take us. Yes. One can hardly imagine anything worse. It's the worst thing in the world. If your friends die and if you are implicated in the judgment against them, and we have to imagine that. So Wyatt is in the tower. He comes in a bit later than the rest of them. But of course, we know that he must have endless evidence about what was said and thought and sung at court. And the letters that are written about Anne in the tower have the arrival of Wyatt in the tower and Anne's response to it. The lieutenant's wife is saying, oh, I wonder who's making their beds. And she says, Master Wyatt is here. We may well make ballots now, ballots, pallets for beds, ballots for songs poetry. So Wyatt is released within the month. We have the letter of his father to Cromwell, which is a plea for his life and an apology for his errors. But I think it's so unlikely that Wyatt didn't give evidence in that case. And he has to live with the consequences of what he's done. And then he writes in a poem, which is in a manuscript which is owned by two great friends of his, members of his household, George Blagg and John Mantle. And this poem is headed by a little figure which has Wyatt surrounded by his virtues, but also by his enemies, circumdaderant mei, inimici mei. And the poem is, The bell tower showed me such sight that in my head sticks day and night, that for all favour, glory and might, that yet circa regna tonat. It thunders around thrones. So this is a translation of Seneca from his Thyestes. So this is an extraordinary moment. The Bell Tower, which is the tower where Thomas More was held, where the most notable political prisoners go. So Wyatt is released. And David Starkey suggests that there's a kind of quid pro quo that Wyatt is released in return for Francis Bryan, his friend, being released. But Wyatt, again, writes an epigram for Sir Francis Bryan, who also had been sent for at this moment. Sent for, which is terrible words in to speak for the king's pleasure. So you never know if you're sent for whether you'll ever be free again. And at the end, sighs are my food, drink are my tears. And again, that's Petrarch. But he ends with a moment from the Bible, from Ecclesiastes, which Brian knows well. And he says something like, sure I am, Brian, the wound will heal, but the scar shall I remain. And that takes you to a moment in Ecclesiastes where friends are warned that the wound will heal, but whoever betrays the secret of a friend, there'll be no help to him. And that image recurs in Wyatt and in another double sonnet to another friend who may be bringing evidence against him. So it's very dark, it's very inward. And then, of course, we have... You mentioned his entanglement with the law of words a few years later and the discussion about the cart's ass. How does he survive this time? 
there's a terrible crisis in diplomacy when Wyatt's successor does the unthinkable thing, which is to go and bow the knee to the Pope. He goes to Rome. And this is an extraordinary moment. And in that moment, all the diplomatic personnel are swept up and examined. And they find this old testimony against Wyatt. And the testimony against Wyatt has been hanging around waiting to be used against him from 1538, which is a great climacteric of diplomacy where something very frightening happens when the French king and the emperor, instead of being enemies of friends, brought together by the pope. So Henry, who's free to dance around when they're enemies because he can play friends with either of them against the other, you know, faces the possibility of the emperor and the French king ganging up against him and sending an enterprise, an impresa against him. And at that moment of terrible failing diplomacy, Wyatt says either the king may be left out of the cart's arse or cast out of the cart's arse. And Wyatt speaks proverbially, To be cast out takes you to a thief who is being hanged and being thrown off the cart. So if Henry is being compared to a thief who's about to be hanged, this is certainly treason under a new law that makes words treason. So Wyatt finds himself in the tower again in the winter of 1540 to 1541, and he writes two extraordinary documents, a declaration and a defence to the judges who are to try him. And this is Wyatt at his rhetorical best, because he's writing to save his life, but he's writing very freely, not in Orient diction, but he says, God knows what restless torment it hath been for me to be here. And he's trying to defend himself against the law of words. Nobody thinks that he'll survive another spell in the tower. And again, his friends are brought home to testify against him. He doesn't know what they're saying, but must be fearful. But at that point, he's freed. And this is very remarkable. It looks as though he may be freed because Henry's new queen, Catherine Howard, has asked for pity, which is what pitiful queens do. But he's freed on an extraordinary condition which is that he take back his wife, whom he's been separated from for 15 years, whom he hates. And that means that he must abandon Elizabeth Darrell, who's living with him now in Allington Castle. It is Henry VIII who is asking this. It is almost unbelievable. It's an extraordinary moment of royal hypocrisy. Quite extraordinary. This king who sets himself up as a conscience for his subjects and applies religious principles for them, which are pretty inconsistent, now is judging Wyatt in this way, which is quite extraordinary. And so this extraordinary survivor, a man of an extraordinary life, extraordinary achievements, career, betrayals, he has got through all this and yet he will die in 1542. And I was thinking of this now, of course, and thinking he was never old. No. He didn't reach 40. No. And so they lose this great light. Yes. And they know what they've lost. I think Surrey says something about his poetry or what he's taught us unperfected for time, that he's gone too soon before he's taught us all that he could. The king looks to him still 
he's sent down to ride down to Plymouth to meet some French ambassador. And he catches a cold and then comes back and dies. But some of his fellows will die into the 1570s, but not Wyatt. He burns bright. And the Earl of Surrey does too, of course. So let us think about Wyatt's legacy. He has introduced the Petrarchan sonnet into English and he and Surrey together have ushered in the Renaissance in terms of literature. What is his reputation and his legacy after that point? For a long time, Wyatt really isn't considered. It's Henry Howard who's the one that's named by Sir Philip Sidney in the defence of poetry, for example. And Surrey's poetry often seems more finished than Wyatt's. I suppose it's only quite recently that he's been recovered. His poetry isn't easy after all. He doesn't have an easy life. He doesn't write easy poetry. If I think what should be his legacy, I think we ought to think about, as he thought about morality and politics, how you live a life in the world, how you keep truth. Not that he did, but that he thought about it. Thank you so much for talking to me again about Wyatt. It is always a joy to talk to you. And what should be said is that whilst you've been working on this man who was this able Latinist, this brilliant linguist, of course that demanded that you be the same and have this remarkable facility with many languages, not least English, in which this book is beautifully written. And it is no wonder it was a winner of the most prestigious prize for history in this country. And it has been an absolute joy as ever to speak with you about it and to just have an opportunity really to sit at your feet. Susie, if I could have the last word, and please don't edit this out. (laughs) Susie was a brilliant undergraduate and we've known each other ever since and carry on talking. So thank you. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. We now have almost a 100 podcasts that we've created since last April, all available for you to listen to again or even discover for the first time wherever you get your podcasts. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, A house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age. A house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.